Hello and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer. Today's episode is a little different to many. It arises out of the current dreadful conflict in Gaza and Israel. This is obviously a topic of passionate interest and debate in the international media and across indeed social media. It is often the case with anything related to the politics of Palestine and Israel, nuance and objectivity seems to be drowned out as each side becomes ever more enraged by the endless cycle of death and destruction. Now, the aim of this podcast is not to talk about the politics of the current conflict. No doubt, in future episodes, we'll return to talk to those who have been impacted by it. Rather, what we're seeking to do today is to provide an overview of the legal framework that governs not only the current hostilities, but the overall legal context of the conflict between the Israeli and Palestinian people. Now, the reason for this narrow focus is because as you might expect in a podcast devoted to the rule of law, we believe that understanding the legal framework can be a very helpful metric to enable all of us to assess the legitimacy and the behaviour of the parties to any conflict, not just the current conflict in the Middle East. So today is a short short podcast in the form of a primer on the international law framework that governs Israel's relationship with Palestinians, the framework that dictates the legality of the behaviour, both of the Israeli military and Hamas, and we'll describe what that framework is, what it requires, and what the consequences of breaching the laws might mean. And hopefully, that will help all of us understand a little, be- a little better what's going on. Now, one of the joys of being at Matrix is that you're surrounded by colleagues who are such experts in their field. And in a field of the law of armed conflict, there's no greater expert than Professor Andrew Clappen. Andrew is Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute Geneva and is widely recognised as one of the world's leading authorities on the responsibilities of state and non-state actors under the laws of war and international human rights law. Andrew is the author of several of the leading textbooks, many of which adorn the bookshelf behind me. Andrew is also a member of the United Nations Commission on human rights in South Sudan. Andrew, uh, it is lovely to see you. People won't be seeing you, but I have the great advantage of it. It is lovely to see you, and thank you so much um, for joining us. I wonder if we can just start with some basics. Some people listening to this will be familiar with the legal framework, some won't be, but it's always as well just to kind of go back to basics and kind of ground ourselves in basic terms. Um, One term that we're hearing a lot of at the moment is international humanitarian law, IHL, and people are also referring to the laws of war. What are those exactly? Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. These two terms can be a bit confusing because they seem to be stressing different aspects um, of the law. But Essentially, international humanitarian law and the laws of war is the same thing. Um, If you choose to use the expression international humanitarian law, you you might be working for a humanitarian organization and you're thinking about the humanitarian aspects. People who stress laws of war, in my experience, are quite often trying to suggest that they're in an armed conflict and these laws entitle them to do something. But in fact, the rules are exactly the same. It's really a, a question of emphasis. And when people talk about the Geneva Conventions and additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, are those part of international humanitarian law? Is that what we mean by the laws of war? 
Exactly, yes. The four Geneva Conventions, their three protocols, and uh, a, a variety of other treaties all apply in times of armed conflict. And there is indeed also customary international law, which applies in times of armed conflict. And that too is international humanitarian law. It's a vast area. It's probably, in my um, view, the area of international law, which is the most regulated. The, the Geneva Conventions have hundreds and hundreds, about 600 articles, um, if you want to study them. Most people who, in my experience, have been talking about international humanitarian law in the last few days um, have not read all the Geneva Conventions and often do not know um, what these basic principles refer to. Now, the, um, the, rule, the rules in IHL um, distinguish sometimes between two types of conflict, an international armed conflict and a non-international armed conflict. What, what, what's the distinction they're seeking to draw? Well, the Geneva Conventions uh, apply in their entirety every time you have an international armed conflict. Um, but only uh, one article in the Geneva Conventions apply when you have, if you like, a civil war or an internal armed conflict. However, the Protocol um, 2 covers non-international armed conflict. So big distinctions are made for the purposes of prosecution in the International Criminal Court or in national courts because different rules apply to different conflicts. By the big principles, you cannot target civilians, you cannot torture your prisoners, you cannot execute people who you've captured. They apply whatever type of conflict it is. So it's a it's an academic minefield, but it's not maybe as essential as people often pretend. So those general rules, um, which cover all forms of conflict, they're first encapsulated formally, is it, in the Geneva Conventions, which are post the Second World War, and then some more specialist rules in protocols, that just called additional protocols, that that that, that are agreed in the in the mid nineteen seventies. Is, is that is that the kind of in general terms the position? That's right. Yes. Um, if you if you understand those four G Geneva Conventions and the two key protocols, you've really got enough uh, to understand any law of armed conflict problem. Before turning to how those rules might govern the current conflict. I wonder if we can just kind of ground ourselves in the kind of regional uh, context. Now, um, normally with uh, armed conflicts, one goes back to the beginning, but the problem about asking people in the Israel-Palestine um, conflict when the beginning is, is that that generates a whole debate in itself, normally stretching back centuries. I'm going I'm to just pick a date of 1967, uh, which is the war in which Israel captures um, territory. That includes... Um, what is known as the West Bank, which was then held by Jordan, and also the Gaza Strip, which at the time was occupied by Egypt. Now, it's right, isn't it, I think that Gaza remains formally occupied by Israel until about 2005, when under Prime Minister Sharon, they withdraw some settlements and the army withdraw. Come on to whether that really is the end of the occupation international law at a moment. Um, but uh, but the West Bank, under the Oslo Accords, um, remains formally occupied, although with some limited self-government. So if I've got that context right, can I ask a few questions coming from it? Are there rules in international law that govern the behaviour of an occupier when they are occupying territory? Yes, um, is the short answer. And they are old rules that you can trace them back 
in history, if you want to go back a bit, you can go back to 1907 to the Hague Convention. But as you've rightly suggested, the 1949 Geneva Convention number four explicitly sets out a lot of detailed rules which protect civilians uh, in occupied territory. So those international rules um, are, as I say, detailed, and they also include something called the grave breaches regime, which means that if uh, you were, for example, to harm uh, the civilian population under occupation, that constitutes a grave breach, which in turn is a war crime and can be prosecuted in the International Criminal Court or in the courts of the United Kingdom and, and elsewhere. Looking at the West Bank first, we'll obviously turn to Gaza in a bit more detail, but looking at the West Bank, is there a consensus amongst uh, international law community as to whether or not this is a occupation that falls within the Fourth Geneva Convention? Uh, consensus, maybe with one exception, which I'll come to in a moment. Um, the International Court of Justice is clear um, in its advisory opinion on the wall that uh, the Geneva Conventions do apply to that occupation. Um, obviously, it would be misleading to suggest that Israel totally accepts that. Um, they accept that they're in occupation, but for very complicated uh, and rather technical reasons, they say that the Fourth Geneva Convention does not apply as a matter of law in their own domestic courts, um, but they do apply customary international law and Hague law. Their legal advisor um, in 1967, uh, Theodore Maron, uh, wrote a legal opinion at the time, uh, which has recently resurfaced, which explains why, um, for example, the building of settlements would be illegal under the Geneva Convention Number no. 4, and why Israel owes that international legal obligation. But as I say, formally speaking, Israel rejects that interpretation of the law. Um can I just ask then about what some of the rules are in respect of the obligations on an occupier? Um, settlements, are they permitted under the Fourth Geneva Convention, settlements by the occupier of the, of the occupied land? No, to transfer population into occupied territory from the occupier's uh, population is a, a breach of the Geneva Conventions, and um, that is, as I think your listeners and, and you know, uh, one of the sort of most um, contested areas in the sense that even the Security Council can, has condemned that and uh, the International Court of Justice. Uh, it's uh, a question which is going to come up in the International Criminal Court but again, for these um, technical reasons, Israel uh, denies the strict applicability of this convention to the transfer of population into occupied territory. But the, the, the consensus from the rest of the world is, is clear that this is illegal under international law. Uh, and as you say, by the, by the International Court of Justice in, in, in their opinion on the legality of the, of the war. Uh, exactly, in the International Court of Justice. The International Criminal Court has yet to um, hear a case um, concerning an individual defendant, um, but the crime is included in its statute. Can I turn then to the law governing the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza? Um, as I mentioned in, in, earlier, the 
Israeli forces um, on well until its current incursion, at least as we stand today, are out of Gaza. They're not formally occupying in the sense of boots on the ground. Um, and Israel would say it is not occupying. As a, as a, as a matter of international law, uh, where do things stand? Um, a lot of the uh, international lawyers who have written on this uh, conclude that uh, Israel is still in a situation of occupation because in Israel controls who comes in and who leaves the occupied territory. They can enter at any moment. Uh, their control is the equivalent, if you like, of boots on the ground. And so uh, when the United Nations, various uh, human rights or commissions of inquiry report on the situation in Gaza, they apply the law of occupation, even if Israeli soldiers are not physically um, in the territory of Gaza. Can I ask that about the status of, uh, of, of uh, uh, Hamas in international law? I mean, Palestine is not a state. Um, well, I'd probably be doing myself a disservice if I didn't sort of interrupt you there. I mean... Yeah, Palestine is a state for many purposes. Um, it's a state party to the Human Rights Treaties. It's a state party to the International Criminal Court. Um, I think half the number of states in the world have recognized Palestine as a state. So whether or not Palestine is a state is um, you know, something which international law can determine, um, but many people would consider that it already exists as a state. Now, it's not enjoying all the powers of statehood um, in the real world, but it's probably not helpful to necessarily say, you know, it's obviously not a state um, when it has a government and it has a sort of territory, albeit not defined, but then the territory of other states are not defined. So, um, and it has a sort of form of governance. So I, I, I'd sort of rather leave that question to one side. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always happy to be corrected by a professor. So that's, <laughs> that's fine. But what, what flows from that is this. Then what's the obligations in international law on the governing Palestinian authorities. And indeed, there are two, aren't there? Because you've got the PA who um, are governing um, the uh, areas in the West Bank and the, of which they have control under the Oslo Accords or a degree of control. But you've got Hamas who are running the show in Gaza. So what's the status of the, of the Hamas government in Gaza in international law? Well, it's, um, I mean, I hesitate to sort of devolve, dissolve into Latin, but I mean, many people would call it a sort of de facto authority. Um, it's clearly in a sort of governance role in Gaza. I'm, I'm not sure that sort of formally trying to describe what is the status of Hamas is, is necessarily helpful. In the current context, um, if uh, an entity, whatever its status, um, is engaged in an armed conflict, it's bound by the laws of armed conflict. So the, the law of armed conflict is not formal in the sense of saying, well, if you don't quite qualify as an authority, then you don't have to abide by the rules of armed conflict. So the missiles going in either direction, uh, the precautions that are taken before they're fired and the way in which they're fired um, and the damage they do to the civilian population is something that international humanitarian looks at without necessarily having to determine first um, what the exact status is of the person who fired it. 
So firing on the civilian population or dropping bombs on the civilian population um, is going to be a violation of that law. Well, can I turn then directly to the current conflict and the legal framework that helps us understand the current conflict? I mean, firstly, do the laws tell us anything as to when um, military operations, um, be they by um, Israel or Hamas, when, when and in what circumstances they can be justified legally? Well, um, I think that's, again, a sort of area where I'd like to sort of stop before we jump in, because the fact that something is not illegal under the law of armed conflict doesn't mean that it's justified. Um, the only justification that you have for using force is that it's absolutely necessary in your self-defense. So before we get to whether or not the laws of armed conflict um, consider that a particular act is illegal, one needs to know whether the use of force in the first place um, is justified. And that is not dealt with by the rules, is it a civilian, is it military, but whether any use of force against anybody is justified in the circumstances. And as you've heard over the last uh, week or so that you know, it is claimed that this is necessary in self-defense. So you have to then ask, well, is that type of force uh, necessary um, and proportionate to the self-defense which is claimed? So, Andrew, is the position then that um, self-defense is a well-recognized ground in international law for military um, action, but it still needs to be justified as actually on the facts, um, self-defense is, is made out. And also anything you, any actions you do take need to be proportionate to the threat that you face. That's exactly right, that it's not enough that you've been attacked and therefore you can just engage in as much force as you want to. It's only as much force as is necessary to repel the threat. And anything that goes beyond that starts to become a new violation of international law um, and an excessive use of force. Once you've determined that the force which is being used in response is proportionate, then it can only be used against a military objective. Now, can I just be, be clear on this? Are these rules that uh, govern Hamas as much as they govern Israel? Well, I think um, uh, yeah, uh, that's a complicated question um, in the sense that uh, Israel is bound by the Charter of the United Nations. Um, and so it, in a way, you could say, has even more obligations uh, because as a UN member state, it can't undermine the self-determination of the Palestinian people. It's not allowed to use force in violation of Article 2.4. Its force has to be proportionate and so on. Um, what Hamas can do is, is sort of, in a way, going back to your earlier question, different because it's not a UN member state. So the, the rules are not exactly uh, symmetrical at that point. No, technically speaking. But in terms of proportionality of any action that they take or legitimacy of any action that they take, they're governed, are they by international uh, humanitarian or the core provisions in the same way as they would be if, it were, if we were assessing Israel's actions? That's exactly right. The, the rules on targeting for both um, mean that you can only target um, a military objective. 
Um, now, that military objective has to be making an effective contribution to military action. It's not enough that you say, well, we consider this is a military objective because it's at some point in the past been used by the military or at some point in the future could be used by the military. It has to be making an effective contribution to military action. And its destruction in the circumstances at the time has to offer a definite military advantage. So, Andrew, can I just understand then, as a matter of law, of international law, the obligation on a party to a conflict to act uh, proportionately, uh, including by the non-targeting of civilians, are those rules that apply um, not simply to Israel, but also to Hamas? Uh, yes, they would apply to both sides. Um, to be clear, no, neither side can target civilians. The concept of proportionality in international humanitarian law is that when you are targeting a military objective, the civilian damage can't be disproportionate to the military advantage that you anticipate. Um, but if I sort of step back a bit, I think one of the problems in talking about this is people skip over the definition of what is a military objective. Um, it's not enough to point to a building um, on either side and say, well, that has had some military use in the past or in the future could have some military use or a military person is is in there. The, the, the military... Um, objective has to be making an effective contribution to military action during that conflict. And its total or partial destruction has to, in the circumstances at that time, offer a definite military advantage. So that's the definition of a military objective. If you don't get past that, you don't get to discuss the proportionality of the civilian damage. The target itself has to be a military objective as understood in international humanitarian law, which I hope you can see is actually quite narrow. Um, it's yes. got to be actually related to the ongoing fighting. It's not some sort of huge strategic idea as in the Second World War. Um, it's got to offer a concrete military advantage as at that time. And so, Andrew, that's the position in what in what a legitimate target is. I mean, one of the issues in this conflict uh, and in previous uh, conflicts of this nature, and indeed seen around the world, uh, are, are um, targeting, whether deliberate or otherwise, of um, media organisations, journalists, um, uh, uh, buildings in which journalists work. What, if anything, does international humanitarian law have to say about that? So let me try and illustrate that with something which may be well known to your listeners, and that's the decision over Bankovic, which was a NATO bombing of a Serb TV station during the Kosovo armed conflict. Now, uh, the justification given was that in this communications tower, there were media organizations, but that the Serb military um, forces were using it to relay military information uh, to their armed forces um, in the field. So at that point, you can see that there may be an argument that such a media tower um, contains a military objective, um, and then we get into the discussion whether the number of civilians which were killed would be justified as proportionate to the military advantage of taking out that tower. So you can see how it can be uh, complicated. Now, if a, 
building was being used purely for media sources, that attack on that instantly is a war crime. It's purely a civilian object. The, the problem comes when an argument can be made that the building uh, is a military objective under the terms that I gave before. What's the position in international law as respect decisions of military commanders where they have what they consider to be a legitimate target, but that uh, attacking that target will inevitably cause civilian deaths? What's the what's international law say, if anything, about the decision making process for a military commander in those circumstances? So there's an obligation um, in choosing that target and considering whether or not to attack it to avoid civilian casualties. So if another target um, offers the same uh, military advantage, then you're obliged um, to take the other target. Um, If you decide to go ahead with it and the number of civilians killed and the civilian damage itself um, taken together with the number of injuries and deaths is disproportionate to your anticipated military advantage, that's going to be a war crime. Now, how you calculate that is obviously um, very difficult because, you know, how do you compare the number of civilians killed and the destruction of the building with uh, the abstract concept of a military uh, advantage? And at that point, a lot of people give up. But, I mean, we shouldn't give up because we're talking about a war crime and we're talking about saving civilian lives. Um, So I think, you know, a commander has to really think, what is my military advantage uh, that we're talking about here? Um, And how great is it in the circumstances at the time? Um, And that's the the test that um, the commander is being asked to to, to do. And unfortunately, as I say, I think there's a lot of shorthand involved here, both in explaining it and in discussing it. But once somebody's decided that something is military, People think, well, by definition, it's an advantage to destroy it. But that's not really what you have to do. You have to consider how advantageous is it and is it worth it compared to the civilian deaths and destruction that you're going to have. And I mean, I might add in the the current context, you know, people sort of count the lives and say, oh, well, no one was killed in the destruction of this building or that building. But the, the test is actually civilian damage, which includes the destruction of the building itself. So those are, you know, people's apartments that they've saved up for it it's not enough to say well we avoided a casualty and just so we're clear i mean that is a very clear position long established position in international humanitarian law and indeed customary international law I think uh, there's plenty of evidence that states do consider it customary. Um, It's included in their military manuals, even those states that that haven't joined uh, Protocol 1, where you find that rule. You can find that rule in the the manuals that have been written for non-international armed conflict as well. So I don't think it's a sort of technical aspect. Um, This disproportionality rule is something that people talk about and military are trained in and you find it in all their instructions uh, all the time. So I don't think it's really in doubt. Uh, Where we get to obvious disagreements is, you know, well, what does it mean to talk about a military advantage and what's a legitimate military advantage? Um, And obviously destruction or terrorizing the enemy is not a legitimate military advantage. Well, can I turn then just to the kind of final part of the discussion, which is what are the consequences for breaches of international humanitarian law? Um, and you've mentioned um, that where there are grave breaches, that will be deemed to be a, a war crime. 
But what's 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 in, in in the real world? What what does it mean to say there are consequences for committing a, a a war crime? Well, these are crimes with no statute of limitations in any jurisdictions. So, you know, the prospect of prosecuting people in many of the armed conflicts around the world often seems rather minimal. But uh, as you know. People travel around and, and many years later, they're not suspecting that they're going to be arrested for war crimes. But these are crimes often of universal jurisdiction where you travel to go and see your family in another country and you find yourself arrested. So the chances of being arrested and prosecuted within your own jurisdiction tend to be rather slim. But on traveling abroad um, or being extradited to another country, the chances increase. And as I say, these can happen decades later. And as you suggested before, there's also the International Criminal Court, which due to the uh, accession by the state of Palestine to the statute, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction um, over what is happening in Gaza. And indeed, uh, some of the crimes which happen in Israel, where they've been launched by Palestinians. So, Andrew, can I just separate those two things out, of both the International Criminal Court and then prosecutions elsewhere, starting with, with, with elsewhere, so that, that I understand it. Because war crimes, war crimes has what's called universal jurisdiction, so they can be tried essentially in any jurisdiction, irrespective of whether or not um, it's the, 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 the focus of the conflict. And we've seen certainly in this country attempts to get arrest warrants when um, former Israeli um, generals have, have, have come into the country. Would that apply equally, though, if a member of Hamas uh, 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 was suspected of a uh, of a war crime? Would that also be subject to um, universal jurisdiction? Uh, that's a rather difficult question. Um, so the, the universal jurisdiction that applies for somebody arriving in London um, is related to grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. And that's a sort of technical term of art. So, for example, um, torturing a detainee in occupied territory is a grave breach. So an Israeli general who travelled through London could indeed be arrested and prosecuted for that grave breach um, under the Geneva Conventions Act in English or British UK law. Um, however, you know Hamas is not in occupation; um, they are not uh, running occupied territory, and so strictly speaking, that grave breaches regime does not apply. So the regime which covers the war crime of attacking or indiscriminately bombing the civilian population is a war crime, but it's not, in fact, um, prosecutable unless you're British in the British courts or a resident of Britain under the ICC Act. Um, as you know, you've got to be resident or a British national. So, in fact, um, maybe not the answer you were expecting, but the, the, the regimes don't work in exactly the same way um, if you were the director of public prosecutions or somebody else seeking to prosecute. You would have to get your head around those um, slight differences. However, for the um, ICC prosecutor, you would have jurisdiction over both those types of crimes. So um, that means if I'm the ICC prosecutor as opposed to the DPP here, um, 
that uh, a Hamas commander would be uh, within the jurisdiction of of, of the court um, in the same way that um, an Israeli commander would be? Uh, yes, if the Israeli actions uh, related to occupied territory or to attacks on the civilian population. But an Israeli act in Israel against um, an Israeli, nothing to do with an armed conflict, um, would not come within the jurisdiction of the court. It's got to be uh, yeah, related to occupied territory. Andrew, thank you so much. That's an incredibly kind of clear explanation of what is, uh, to most of us, a very complicated area um, of law applied in the most depressing of possible contexts. But, I mean, hopefully it's going to be helpful for us all to understand that framework so that we can um, use it as a metric when we're watching the depressing news. (laughs) So thank you very much indeed for joining me.